You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here is your host, it's Mr. Carl Stebbings. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 59 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and joining me back in my kitchen studio this week yes. is Matt Smith. Hello, good morning, yes. How are you? I'm all right. A little bit tired, I've got to be honest. I think we're all a bit tired today. Yeah, we, we definitely are, yes. We're both. Yes, now, I was working last night, so it's, I didn't get home till about one. So You are coach driving? I was coach driving, <gasps> yes, yes. I, wow. had, I, I think I had some of your relatives on board, in Ooh. fact, actually. <laughs> How unfortunate for you. Yeah, no, no, it was all very, they were all very well behaved, oh, I can good, report. Good, good, yes, good. And we went to, uh, went to the Horning Steam Paddle thing. Over. Steam Paddle. Yes, oh. very nice. Yes. Nothing aviation related. Uh, no, no, I'm no, afraid. Yes, a different, yet, a, yet another form of transport. That uh, that is nothing to do with what we do here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it was good fun. It was lovely. they, they the, the, the uh, crew actually treated me like royalty. It was lovely. They were bringing me tea and coffee and oh. uh, and a little tray of sandwiches and everything. Sort of half midway through the, the, four, a four hour cruise down the broads. It was lovely. The, 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 uh, the horrible life of a bus driver. Oh, yeah. I know, but coach, coach, dri- sorry, coach, coach driver, sorry, darling. Coach, please, coach. honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I have curtains and soft furnishings. Therefore, it's a coach. How dare you? Oh. That was a. Um, but you, but you had a nice week anyway. I, yeah, not bad. Yeah, yeah. I had a, an unplanned trip to London that was horrific. Oh. And I do mean horrific. It's the yeah. first time in a long time that I've had to have somebody come out and take over from me because I ran out of driving hours. Oh, dear. Yes. Oh, yes. The old driving hour laws. Oh, yes. gosh, yeah. Yes. Got to about, uh, oh, I must have been, um, we left London at five and we got about two miles and then literally ground to a halt oh. and didn't move for like 40 minutes. Oh. <laughs> so that little window of, of safety that I had was very quickly eroded. So somebody had to come and re- meet me at Chelmsford to continue oh. our journey. But uh, the passengers weren't inconvenienced because by the time they'd had their break, the uh, the uh, there was another driver there ready to go. Oh, so that is, that is the one thing I will say about the firm I work for. They're very good about that sort of thing. So Excellent. Yeah, well, I've been on late, so enough right, about that. Right, okay. Right. <laughs> so you've been a bundle <laughs> of joy a bundle week of then. joy yes, this week. Absolutely. Yes, yes. The yeah. lovely Tootle 10 shift. <gasps> but no, it's uh, we'll get back to aviation. Okay. It's, yes. uh, it's the 2nd of May. It certainly is. Uh, just coming up to quarter to 10 in the morning. Really? I know, another month gone. has yeah. been absolutely crazy. God, the so year is flying by. I know. Uh, but we've got lots of news stories to cover this week. Uh, we've got a bit more air, air show news as well yes. this week. We also do have a segment from Pip this week. Yes, we do. Um, which is kind of a, a, an addition mm. to the series that he's produced for us for the last um, three episodes. Yeah, he's put him, one yeah. on there. So we've got that to play. Yep. But uh, as we uh, start today then, lovely weather outside. So it is. Yes, it is a bit. Yes, yes, yes. So we're going to kick off the show then, as we do each week, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. Oh, yeah. Let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story, then. You and know how to make life hard for me. <laughs> the Coventry Telegraph, this one. Oh. And uh, it, uh, the headline is Look, a former RAF aircraft could return to the sky after 24 years at Coventry Airport. So, a project hopes to get the Avro Shackleton taking off from the runway 
at uh, Bangton, um, an iconic Cold War aircraft which has remained grounded in Coventry for nearly 25 years, could take to the skies once more. One of the world's few remaining Avril Shackletons, a descendant of the legendary Lancaster, was flown into Coventry Airport when it was retired by the RAF in 1991. But now a team of ex-RAF engineers and aviation enthusiasts are trying to return the Maritime Patrol aircraft to its former glory. And the latest part of that project saw them bidding to raise £12,000 for a close inspection of the piston-engined aircraft. Of the 185 Shackletons built in the 1950s, less than 18 survive worldwide. And if one of uh, uh, one at Coventry, serial number WR963, returned to flight, she would be the last of her kind to do so. Oh, wow. Richard Woods from the project said that uh, we hit the target with uh, with five days to go for what is a massive project. The money raised will be used to look at the state of the aircraft and how how well it has survived over the years. It will be 25 years uh, next year since it was retired, so we need to find out if it needs any work and if it will be fit to fly again. The money will help pay for specialist inspections, x-rays, ultrasounds, and even an endoscope into the plane's weird and wonderful places. (laughs) If it fails the testing, it could cost up to £5 million to fix, and we will be looking at five to ten years to get that money raised. But if it passes, then we are looking at a lot less money and we could potentially see it flying in about two years' time. It would be fantastic and a great achievement for all the people that have worked on this project. And the Shackleton has already been upgraded from a silent relic after all four of its engines roared into life in 2013 for the first time in five years. And it will once again be moving around on its own power this Saturday. Uh, which is today, as part of its latest show at Coventry Airport. The Airbase Gets Airborne uh, uh, Gets Airborne event uh, will see dozens of classic aircraft from the last century on the show, including the Gloucester Meteor, de Havilland Vampire and Jet Provost T5. There will be a spectacular air display as well as numerous pleasure flights from around 10am onwards. See, it's a bit of a shame that they didn't realise that there was this big ad anniversary, if you like, um, be- before yeah. they did it. Because, it, I mean, how great would that have been for it to actually be in the air as part of this anniversary? I mean, I could really, I, well, I really hope we see it on, on the air show um, circuit mm. next year because... Um, but well, it's, it's the year I, after, sorry. I saw one of these many years ago... Mm. Um, um, static at an air show, but they are fantastic to see up close. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the, the actual aircraft itself, the Avro Shackleton, was a British long-range maritime patrol aircraft for use by the Royal Air Force and the South African Air Force. It was developed by Avro from the Avro Lincoln bomber uh, itself being uh, a development of the famous wartime Avro Lancaster bomber. The uh, the type is named after the polar explorer, explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. Um, 9th of March 1949 was its first or its inaugural flight. Wow. Uh, Introduction uh, officially uh, April 1951. It went into service uh, with the primary users being uh, Royal Air Force and South African Air Force. Uh, and retired in 1991, as you said. So uh, it's had quite a long life. Yeah. Mm. Although they only made, uh, they only built it between 1951 and 58. So it was only. They still of, managed 185 yeah. of those aircraft. Yeah, though, not so bad. Though. Great. Yeah, very but, much. But so. uh, great picture there as well on this uh, mm. site on the um, uh, Coventry Telegraph site. Yeah. Uh, really good picture of the uh, the Shackleton 
um, with HMS Illustrious mm. in the background, one well, of let, our aircraft, our um, since gone yeah, aircraft yeah. carriers. Um, yeah. Well, let, let's hope it, uh, it it doesn't need the, the the massive amount of work and it passes the test because it'd be great to see it in the in the sky sooner rather than Definitely. later. Frankly, uh, on to our next story. This is a Ryanair story. Always Woo-hoo! safe for me, it seems. This is on the Reuters website. <laughs> Ryanair boss eyes ten to fifteen percent cut in fares in the next two years. That's quite exciting. Um, European budget airline carrier Ryanair expects its fares to decline by between fifteen, uh, between ten and fifteen percent over the next two years, as it will pass it on to travellers. The travellers benefits the the benefits, sorry, of lower oil prices. Its chief executive has said in a news, newspaper review. Asked if Ryanair fares could fall further, Michael O'Leary told French weekly Le Journal du Marin de Minach. That's a bit of a mouthful. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. I feel obliged to read this message. Absolutely. No, sorry. Absolutely. By the by at least 10 to 15% over the next two years. In 2016, our average airfare could be around about 40 euros. This will come this will come as we pass on lower oil prices. We will also continue to grow passenger numbers and cut our costs, he said. O'Leary said that the average price of a Ryanair ticket was currently forty six euros, which he said compared with around hundred and seventy euros for a short haul flight within Europe on other airlines. So it's good news for It is good news, yeah. Over. Yeah. For the prices over. to come down again. Um, yeah. I guess the only concern is it could very easily go back up again yeah. when you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if if oil fuel, prices, if oil prices yeah, go back yeah. to a bit like what they were, so it's uh, it's a watch this space, I think. Definitely. Next story: The Guardian um, website. This one and uh, the headline: The demise of the Boeing seven four seven is a sign of changing flight patterns. So Boeing's most famous plane is much loved by pilots, but is uh, orders fall. How much longer will we see it in the skies? Mm. Dreamed up in another age, the 747 within, was in the skies, and I didn't realise this, it was in the skies before Concorde. Really? Um, and before man reached the moon, and when President of the United States was a child. Uh, Boeing's most famous plane has been up there ever since, redefining the language of aviation uh, as the original jumbo jet, carrying twice as many passengers as most other aircraft. Hundreds uh, crisscross across the globe every day, and new Boeing 747s still slowly gestate in the, on the production line. But it is now almost 18 months since the last order from a passenger airline, and the long uh, flight of the 747 appears to be uh, firmly in its descent. Boeing insists that it, ha- it has a future. Uh, even the president still wants it for a revamped Air Force One, as we covered in a few episodes mm. back. But the White House aside, uh, its demise has been a long signal after more than 1,500 orders since it first entered service in 1970. Total aircraft orders have only broken into double figures once in the eight years through a single Korean Airlines purchase since uh, rival Airbus delivered its first A380. The European manufacturer's bigger and more efficient plane promised to out-jumbo the jumbo, extending uh, the distinctive bump of the 747's prow along the fuselage into a full-length double-decker. Yet the A380's own mixed fortunes, um, 317 of which have been ordered since it launched, but its interest also is dwindling, suggests sized plus-size planes are out of fashion. Only Emirates, the deep-pocketed Gulf carrier whose Dubai base has been remodelled around its super jumbo, 
uh, shaped business plan has kept the A380 sales figures respectable. In its uh, slightly sniffy annual forecast, Boeing claims the wide-body or twinner's aisle sector of the aircraft market will be of dwindling importance with the A380 unlikely to succeed. Whether both jumbos will be taken down by similar forces is uh, a moot point, Tim Clark, the chief executive of Emirates, says. Uh, The A380 chief suffered um, by being launched during the financial crisis when few could risk such a a huge investment. On that, Boeing might privately agree that the 747's early years after it entered commercial service in 1970 were dogged by a weak global economy. And Boeing itself expects demands for its large planes to pick up with the global economy. But only its freight versions, a windowless 747 with a hinged nose to allow oversized cargo on board, is selling right now. Although uh, only two were sold in 2014 and and in 2015, only the Azerbaijan carrier Silkway has bitten. Production of the 747s has slowed to a one and a half uh, a month with just 35 more planes on the order books, which equates to uh, two more years worth of manufacturing. So no, it really, it really is sort of reaching the end of its sort of production life. Then, by mm. the sound of it, it's a shame. It's a, now, I, I must admit, I queried you because it because it says that it was it was in service before the first, yes. um, before the man made sort of man made on the yeah. moon type thing, which which I must admit I was a bit suspicious about. But I have to say, um, <laughs> having no, I've I've literally just looked it up. You the found first, it, yeah, uh, yeah. The the first success was not actually the Americans; it was actually the Russians. Uh, what they call the first lunar impact, which is I think is what they're using as mm. as the mark, and that was in the September of nineteen fifty nine, and it officially went into service um, in uh, in the February of nineteen fifty nine. Oh. So it, so it only beat it by about six months, but it was uh, yeah. it was nevertheless. So we've got. Um, Let's let's look at some stats here. So introduction officially, uh, although its first flight was February the 9th, nineteen sixty nine. Um, the uh, the actual introduction was in January uh, in January nineteen seventy with Pan American World Airways. They were the first people to take the Fort seven four seven out. Um, but uh, they there's uh, where was it? nineteen. Uh, this is quite interesting actually. In nineteen sixty seven, uh, it it cost you. Uh, 24 million US dollars to build a plane in 1967. That was the 747-100. The original, yeah. The original. The, yeah the original. If you go for the newer one now, the 747-8F, uh, yep. uh, and that'll set you back a cool $352 million. dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but but as we, as we everyone knows, that uh, airlines never pay, pay the list price. Oh right! Always, oh, yes, yeah. yes, oh, right. okay. yes. That's yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the price on the screen, like when you go to a garage, right? Yes, and it's never yeah. the price you and pay. You, yeah, you see if you can yes. knock off a couple of thousand, yes, uh, or or a couple of hundred thousand <laughs> in in this case. But uh... no, but that is interesting. You know, that's just, mm. it'll be a shame to see um, if you know if they do stop production. Well, yeah, um, and, and, and I mean, it's been in been in service a very very long time. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's a primary use is obviously now. Uh, British Airways, Lufthansa, KLM, and United Airlines. So. That's with the Dash Eight, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, with yeah. the freighters as well, yeah. yeah. But uh, yes, so next, moving on. Next yes, story. next story. This is this is on the AOL travel site, uh, and it's uh, the headline is Gatwick versus Heathrow. Guess which airport is cheaper to fly from? I reckon Gatwick. What do you reckon? <laughs> um, do you reckon? I'd say Gatwick. Yeah, you'd say Gatwick. Mm. So travellers. 
uh, can save £327 on flights to Hong Kong by choosing this particular airport. It still hasn't said which one is driving us. <laughs> uh, tourists flying from Gatwick Airport are true winners Yay. when it comes to... Well, it's because it's just not that bit. It's a bit further out of London, isn't yeah. it? That's, that's all it is. Tourists flying from Gatwick Airport are true winners when it comes to saving money as short-haul flights departing from the, the London airport uh, is 19% cheaper than if you went from Heathrow. New research from kayak.co.uk showed that on average travellers can save £39 on flights to Amsterdam, 108 from Gatwick and 147 from Heathrow. £43 on flights to Berlin, that's making the flight £107 from Gatwick, £150 from Heathrow, and £51 on a flight to Istanbul, where it's £188 if you go from Gatwick, £239 if you go from Heathrow. The savings are even bigger on long-haul flights. Passengers flying to Dubai can save an average of £63 a person. So if you Mm. go from Gatwick, it'll cost you £445. Go from Heathrow, £508. £155 on flights to New York, so it's £419 from Gatwick, £574 from Heathrow, and £327 on flight. Wow, you can save, there's a difference of £327 on flights to Hong Kong. So if you go from, um, um, yeah, that's crazy. If you go from Gatwick, you can fly to Hong Kong for £573. If you go from Gatwick, it's 900 From and Heathrow. Go, from Heathrow. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So if you go from Gatwick, it's £573. If you go from Heathrow, it's £900. That's, that's quite a big difference, I really. I thought there was a typo the way I was reading it. There's yeah, no way yeah. it could be a five... Wow, that is crazy. While Gatwick might be the most affordable option for flyers, kayak.co.uk found that Heathrow takes the popularity vote with 87% of travellers searching for long-haul flights through the airport as opposed to Gatwick. I guess it gets more, t- more terminals, I mm. suppose. Um, for for short haul flights, fifty six percent of searches through Heathrow and Gatwick falls just short of this at forty four percent, according to the travel search engine. Tra- January saw January saw short haul flights from Gatwick around twenty percent cheaper than at Heathrow, slightly dropping to eighteen percent in March. And it's not only the short haul flights that Gatwick are undercutting Heathrow on. In March, long haul flights were still on average ten percent cheaper from Gatwick. But Heathrow isn't the coolest, uh, the costiest airport for all destinations. Holidaymakers travelling to New Delhi, Manila, Sydney, and Kuala Lumpur can enjoy cheaper flights than flying from Gatwick. So I suppose it's, I, I guess it depends on the airline, doesn't it? Well, we're flying from Heathrow in in um, September. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's to Malta. To Malta, yeah. yeah that'll be. Um, but we're we're flying out of one terminal and coming back into another. So. Right? Are you? Yeah. Oh, and I've unusual. never done that before, no. so it'll be interesting to see what um, yeah, the difference. The, well, how, what the, logi- the logistics are like from mm. travelling from um, one terminal or one you know terminal to the other. So, which one for you then? If you had to pick between. Oh, if I had to fly from one, um, I think if I was. In the in the airport for a, a, a for a quite a while waiting mm. for a flight, I think I'd rather be in Heathrow just right. purely because just of the amount of yeah. uh, shops and and stuff to yeah. do, bits to do. I suppose uh, the trouble is Gatwick's a bit tired, isn't it? Because it is mm. quite an old airport, and it hasn't let's be honest, it hasn't had the investment perhaps that Heathrow has. But they're constantly doing. I mean, you know, when you travel through even Heathrow, but mm. especially Gatwick, there's always sections that are being. Being up, renovated and yeah, upgraded all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
So moving on then, yes. the next story, the TNT UK magazine website. Um, and following on from that last story, London Heathrow named the UK's favourite airport. Right, despite... Despite yes. being more expensive. <laughs> okay. Heathrow hailed as the UK's favourite airport, while British Airways is named Brit's favourite airline. Mm. London Heathrow is the UK's favourite airport, while British Airways is the nation's favourite international airline. A survey of over 3,700 uh, 3, UK travellers by TripAdvisor has revealed. Mm. The annual air travel survey also revealed British holidaygoers pet likes and gripes about the experience of booking and taking flights. More than a fifth, 21% of those polled, named London Heathrow as the UK's best airport. Manchester was a close second, cited by one in six, 17% of those polled, followed by London Gatwick in third at 15%. For the second year running, British Airways was named the Brit's favourite airline with nearly a quarter of the vote, 27, uh, 23%. Uh, Virgin Atlantic polled at 13% to claim second spot, while just over 1 in 10, uh, 11%, named Emirates as their favourite airline. Ryanair uh, came in at uh, just 2% of the votes cast. Really, that's a shock. <laughs> yes. That is a, I thought that, that would make you happy. such a shock. Yes. Uh, when asked which aspects of air travel uh, had most improved in the last five years, Nearly three-quarters of Brits named the ease of booking online, 74% of which. But that's uh, got while, nothing to do with the airport. No, I know. Surely, no. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, nearly half, 47%, cited comparison shopping options or uh, on-flight searches like TripAdvisor, which I hmm. do use, I must admit. Yes, yes. The survey showed that uh, a shift in attitude since last year's survey, which had revealed that the price was the most important factor for passengers when picking flights. This year, however, fewer travellers name price as a key factor when choosing flights um, than those citing departures and arrival times or the option to fly direct, suggesting a majority of Brits are now prepared to pay more for convenience. Mm. When asked uh, which added fees they found most annoying, a third of British passengers... 33%, named and shamed checked baggage charges. Uh, seat selection charges were second on the Brit's pet hate list, <laughs> cited by over a quarter, 28% of those polled. Um, definitely for me, that the seat, I think, the paying for, mm. uh, you know, for a seat is definitely, yeah. you know, for me, one of those things, things I just don't... D don't agree no, with. No, I don't agree yeah. with. Um, yeah. Checked in baggage... I mean that, that airlines do that anyway. Lots mm, of airlines yeah. do it, not just yeah. in the UK, but in the States it, as well. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, another thing as well, overweight baggage. Yes, I mean that's uh, yeah. that's up to us as a passenger. If you're yeah. if you're caught at an airport a few mm. kilos over, yeah, should that be you know, should you get upset about having to pay? I think the problem is, is there is quite a big difference. There's a there's a consistency issue between the way you weigh the bags in London. As an example, and where you weigh, where you weigh them in Malta, because quite mm. often, even though you've taken exactly the same kit, you've probably brought home less than you took because you've left all your toiletries and things in the hotel, or you've stuck it in the bit. And mm. somehow, when you weigh it at the other end, and it, I must admit, I've only had this bad experience with Ryanair. <laughs> um, when you come home, somehow the bag is heavier, and you think it's impossible because <laughs> I'm not. 
you know, unless I've put loads, of, unless all my clothes have got unexpected sand in them or something like that, they yeah. are definitely, my case is definitely lighter than when I went. And so why are you charging me more? So it's either London scales that are out or, mm. or, or at the other end, I don't know. Do you know, we, we, we brought a cheap um, set of digital hand scales from yes. um, the wonderful shop that is Morrison's. Um, <clears throat> no name plugs there. Um, but we brought a cheap set of hand scales from the little, yeah. little tiny little yeah. pocket ones, digital scales. And they're only a fiver. Yeah. Um, but I tell you what, every time we've flown from either Stansted Luton or or, yeah. or Gatwick, um, the weight that I get on my scales here is the weight that those uh, they get on their scales oh, on the yeah. on the checking desk exactly right. within oh, a point one. So so you're pretty confident yeah. that the case is going to go yeah. straight yeah. through. I was actually looking up um, uh, for another project. Actually, this is to do with uh, a bit of the history of Heathrow. So in 1930. British aero engineer and aircraft builder Richard Farley paid the vicar of Houndsworth £15,000 for a 150-acre plot to build a private airport to assemble and test aircraft, Mm. complete with a single grass runway and a handful of hastily erected buildings. Farley's Great West Aerodome was the the humble precursor to the world's busiest international airport at Heathrow. During World War II, the government requisitioned the land uh, in and around the ancient agricultural village of Heath Row, uh, including Farley's Great Western Aerodrome, to build the RAF Heston, uh, a base for um, long-range troop-carrying aircraft bound for the Far East. Wow. So uh, yeah. It was. I, I. I. I won't bore you with all the details. But when I was reading up on this, I thought I really felt quite sorry for for the Mr. Farley because it was he built this wonderful airport and the government went. Mm, I think we'll have that. Thank you. <laughs> sort of like they do with most things. But I don't mm. know. I love the fact that it was. It you know the ancient uh, agricultural village of Heath Space Row, Row. and there there is the name, <laughs> isn't it? So it became Heathrow Airport. Oh, but, brilliant! Uh, yeah, lovely. So moving on yes, to indeed. the yeah. next story. Yeah, this is flightglobal.com and the headline, two Jetstar A320s grounded after a foam, foam incident. Have they been, somebody been <laughs> celebrating again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, two Jetstar A320s are being repaired after being covered in fire retardant foam at its MRO facility in Newcastle. A spokesman for the carrier tells Flight Global that on the 23rd of April, the fire retardant system in the hangar was triggered which is believed to have been related to storm damage. Uh, pictures on the social media show the retardant uh, up to the wing level of the two aircraft and inside Blimey. the, the uh, cargo hold of one of the aircraft. Our engineers are currently assessing the aircraft that were in the hangar and at the t- that were in the hangar at the time of the event. He adds, there are some works required before returning the aircraft to service. However, these aren't significant. Sources indicate that the two aircraft involved are registered as VH VQW. Uh, in brackets MSN three two three two nine and VQC um, three six six eight. So, um, oops, oops, another <laughs> another foam faux pas. Is it is it that is it really that that bad for? I mean, why, yeah, the, why the, does it take them so long to get them back into service? Surely you could just hose it down. Yeah, the, the foam that they use, Matt, is a, is a specialist fire retardant foam, right? Okay. And it's designed to be quite clumpy and thick. And as right. soon as it hits, you know, like a, a, a fire, it sort of starves the right. fire of okay. any oxygen yeah. so it's quite a, a you, you wouldn't want to bathe in it put no, it that way no, no, no. Um, and obviously when it's it got into all the little right. nooks and crannies yeah, and little so. bit gaps it's, it does take a while to, yeah. to wash but out I, I mean the engines wouldn't have been running or anything would they no so. no 
it's just going to take a yeah. while to clean yeah. out. But oh, Jetstar well, is um, Jetstar is actually um, one of uh, Stephen Grant's favourite airlines. Is it over at the PCDU? Yeah, is it? yeah. Oh. They're hubbed in uh, Melbourne Airport oh, oh. in oh, Australia. Right. Um, yeah, Jetstar. They quite often talk about Jetstar on their podcast. Uh. <laughs> Next story, then. Moving on, Flight Global again. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh gosh, I pronounce this now. Pronunciation. Here we go. <laughs> Liebherr, Liebherr division uh, to build. This is quite quite cool. Mm. Uh, to build triple triple seven X folding wingtip systems. Folding wingtip systems. So German uh, firm Liebherr Aerospace Lindenberg is to supply crucial components for the folding wingtip mechanism on the Boeing 777X. The 3.5-metre folding tips will reduce the wing's uh, span to less than 65 metres to stay within the size category of the current 777. Lieber Aerospace states it will provide the fold subsystem as well as latch pin and secondary lock actuators. It adds that the compact, extremely reliable and powerful subsystem will employ a motor and rotating actuator to move the wingtip. All three components will be designed, manufactured and serviced by Lieber Aerospace Lindenberg. Uh, this is something that um, I've seen online and, and, uh, and it, it's quite amazing to see um, uh, you know the pictures I've got of the of a triple seven with with folding wingtips. Yeah, it's a great idea. Crazy. <laughs> it's a really good idea to save space. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the the you know the, the dimensions of the aircraft will be greatly reduced by being able to press a button on the uh, mm. flight deck and have the wingtips um, move up out the yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I I was trying to look up some more information and I stumbled across a, a fantastic wiki that's basically planes with folding wings. Ah, right, yeah. There's been lots. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I the, suppose it's handy for parking, isn't yes. it? Yes, especially on carriers. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely yeah. during during the uh, during the war and that, we had carriers with uh, aircraft with the folding wingtips, um, which is a great, great idea. But yeah, moving yeah. moving with passenger aircraft and stuff, I mean, mm. you know, imagine the savings in, in space you'd have at air, all these big major airports yeah, yeah. if you had more and more aircraft with folding wingtips. You'd save so much space. Cool, yeah. You, you'd be able to put we, another another gate in. Well, well, you. I don't. I don't know. I, I, I don't like the idea of them folding up. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no reliability. Because trouble is that's where they put the fuel, isn't it? In the wing, I bet there wouldn't be any. In that particular section, there wouldn't be any right, fuel. Right. Okay. But. Yeah. No. It's just, I don't know. I don't like the idea of stuff being able to fold up while you're flying along <laughs> accidentally. I'm sure there'd be yeah. millions of safety <laughs> yeah, things I put know, in place for that. You know what I'm like, devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on then, next story. Indeed, and this is right up my street. Save this, this one for you. Indeed, this is Flight Global again, and the headline, Panasonic Live TV and Wi-Fi to debut on the ANA 787-9 with Japanese carrier Al Nippon Airways, in brackets ANA. I, I did wonder what ANA was. ANA, Al Nippon. Yeah, yeah. yeah Al Nippon. Um, Nippon, sorry. Uh, on the 5th of May to launch international services with its newly arrived Boeing 787-9. Passengers will be able to benefit from the latest Panasonic in-flight entertainment and connectivity system. The lineup includes its live television product, uh, X. 
uh, EXTV, which grants passengers the opportunity to view a host of live channels during their flight, including the N- including NHK World Premium, CNN and Sport24. In addition to the live television, ANA customers will be able to purchase Wi-Fi access to browse the internet and send emails using Panasonic's EX Connect, which I think we covered the last week mm. or the week before, EX Connect service. The 787-9 will also feature uh, uh, EX three Panasonic's most advanced in-flight entertainment system. Um, the director of products and services for Panasonic's strategy said, um, for years our passengers have enjoyed an incredible entertainment experience through our partnership with Panasonic and with our new 787-9 aircraft, we wanted to elevate this experience to a whole new level. With a powerful mix of early window content, live television and international Wi-Fi. We're setting a new standard for air travel, and we are proud to be the partner of Panasonic. The 787-9 will initially be deployed on the Tokyo um, to Munich route. Fantastic. Mm. How far do you think they can go with all this in-flight entertainment, Matt? You've got a screen in front of you, a touch screen. You've got tons of films to, to, to watch and television programs to view. I mean, where do you go from well, there? Well, I mean... I mean very early on, I mean, the, the very early, I'm going to sound like a right geek here, but the very early um, in-flight entertainment systems where you could pick your TV, uh, your the, the, the program that you were going to stream, essentially. I mean, we now know it as streaming, but of course it was very revolutionary when you were able to mm. literally sit in your own second seat and pick your own um, thing. And they were actually based on the Linux operating system. And the only reason I know that is because once while I was flying on a flight, one uh, my system actually crashed and they rebooted it for me. And up came the the um, the Mandrake um, Linux um, sort of operating system. So, I mean, really... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much more you can do, really. I mean, the only thing that they, the only, I suppose the only thing they could Im- improve, I guess, is making it so that if they can improve the, the data side of things mm. so that you get a very, very fast connection between you and the aeroplane. I mean, that's really probably the only f- further step that they can go where you could make more sort of, I mean, a lot of the linear channels, as we call it now, you can actually watch on the internet. Um, but, I mean, really, it will depend on what rights they've got to you know as in what um television rights they've been able to obtain in order to show them on the aircraft so i think it's more going to be about broadcasting rights rather than anything Mm. else because i know you have to sort of get special permission on an aircraft to be able to put like you know say a tv series of house or dexter or whatever it is that you're you're into you have to have because you can you can on on some of the airlines mate you can plug your own device in and, yes. and watch your own, and watch stuff, your own stuff yeah on, on the screen on their you? screen yeah uh, yeah yeah you can't yeah. um i suppose that's different because that becomes that becomes your own personal you you know a film mm. that you bought or downloaded or, or whatever I'm, I'm pretty sure you can do it with audio i'm not sure whether you can do it with video, visual right, visual yeah. uh, video mm. stuff yeah. but i know that that with emirates you you could plug yeah. your 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 android device or your your iphone or whatever mm. into the seat back usb port and listen to your music yeah. Um, through through the IFE system, which yeah. is quite cool. Yeah, no, it is very cool. As I say, but as you say, the the, the question is, I mean, really, it's going to depend on on their ability to to get a decent um, internet or you know mm. data connection between the aeroplane, and it's going to need to be very reliable if everybody's sitting there watching 
watching stuff live. Mm. I could I could see a system where if they do improve the way that you know if the decent satellite systems and things where get a decent connection, I could see it where perhaps the programs and that aren't stored on the plane itself. Streaming live via yeah. Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you wouldn't need anywhere near the kind of the equipment that you need in the plane to, to actually do it. But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, it's, it's good. It's, it's ever-changing cha- uh, ever technology is yeah, awesome. absolutely. Breaking travel news site, this next story then. Boeing 777-300ER milestone for Cathay Pacific. Boeing and Cathay Pacific Airways have celebrated their delivery of the airline's 50th 777-300ER. They are rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, this delivery, Cathay Pacific will have 67 uh, Boeing 777s in operation, which also includes 12 777-300s and 5 777-200s. Cathay Pacific is slated to receive three more 777-300ERs this year and is one of the launch customers for the 777X with 21 777-9X airplanes on order. The 777-300ER forms the backbone of our long-haul fleet, uh, said Ivan Chu, chief executive of Cathay Pacific Airways. We operate the largest 777-300ER fleet in Asia, and this super-efficient long-haul aircraft allows us to co- uh, operate multiple daily frequencies in two intercontinental markets, which gives our customers a lot of choices. The 777-300ER is the most fuel and cost-efficient airplane in its class, as well as the most reliable twin-aisle aircraft in the world. It is also the highest cargo capa- uh, capability of any passenger airplane. The 777-300ER will receive further improvements in 2016 uh, designed to reduce fuel by 2%. Uh, We truly value the confidence Cathay Pacific have demonstrated in the 777 program as well as Boeing products and services across the board, says Ishain Munhir, the Senior Vice President of Sales for Northeast Asia Boeing Commercial Airplanes. We are honoured that the 777-300ER continues to play a prominent role in the success of Cathay Pacific's business expansion, and we look forward to expanding our partnership with the new 777X in the years to come. Brilliant news, then. It is, yes. You were asking the question. Um, you reckon they were quite a wealthy airline. Yes. Plenty of money floating around. The uh, short answer is very much so. Okay. Uh, I can't find very, very up-to-date figures, but I found some figures for 20, 2011, and their revenue uh, alone was uh, 98.90... Uh, oh, I can't even read that. So it's <laughs> $98,406 million. Oh, They've got a few quid laying <laughs> They've around. They've got a then. few quid around. Wow. Yeah. But Cathay have been around for a long, long while. Yeah, Cathay absolutely. Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Fantastic. They used to actually used to fly the TriStar. Did they? Many years oh, ago, yeah. You and that blooming TriStar. I know. Honestly. <laughs> anyway, uh, they currently have a fleet size, and this includes um, cargo and um, uh, other aircraft, 177 in fleet, in their fleet at the moment. Um, got some. Uh, they've got a couple of subsidi- subsidiaries. Okay. Um, they've got an alliance with One World. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Air Hong Kong is is sixty. They've got a sixty percent share in that, and obviously they have something to do with Dragon Air as well. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's kind of a low cost sort of yeah, um, offshoot. Sort of, yeah. But uh, founded mm. in twenty fourth of September nineteen forty six, Cathay Pacific. Mm. Yeah. So they've been about a long time. Um, Got the, the green and uh, white logo. Yes, Cafe that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's very simple, isn't it? It's got almost like a sort mm. of 
yeah, sort of an arrow, isn't it? Basically, with uh, with 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 the light writing, very good. So our last story then. Our last story, yes. This is, is on uh, this, CNN. This one has actually only come up in the last twenty four hours. This right. one, as confirmed. Uh, oh, disaster hit Mala- Malaysia airline airlines offloads A three eighty super jumbo fleet. Oh dear, that's sad, isn't it? Uh, so this is from CNN. As I said, it seems uh, big is no longer best for disaster hit Malaysia air. Well. Airlines, it's said to be offloading its entire fleet of A380 Super Jumbos. Uh, Malaysia has uh, struggled financially in the wake of the twin tragedies in 2014, including the disappearance of flight MH370 and the shooting down of MH17 over the Ukraine. Um, aviation website Liam, Liam News, citing the airline, says Malaysia is offering all six of its A380s for sale or lease. Reconstructuring measures also include letting go of its two Boeing 747-400Fs and four Boeing 77-200ERs. Malaysia Airway Airlines, uh, which has a fleet of around about 150 jets, was privatised last year following the two disasters. The airline has been posting losses for the last three years. Some 239 people were presumed killed when flight uh, MH370 vanished en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing on March the 8th, 2014. All 298 people on board MH17 were killed when it was shot down over the Ukraine airspace on July the 17th, 2014. Neither incident involved an A380. Uh, Liam says the sale which comes just days after the A380 celebrated 10 years in the air, will be an interesting hurdle for the Super Jumbo at a time of mixed fortunes for the aircraft. The disposal of all six A380s presents an opportunity to test the market for used A380s, which I think is a story we covered last week, wasn't it? Mm. And whether a key component to Airbus's strategy for the Super Jumbo going forward will work, allow airlines to try out the airplane without having to spend the huge amount of money required to buy new, it says. After experiencing the A380, the theory goes, other carriers will understand how this can spur sales. Um, Analysts between uh, believe the A380 still has a strong future, despite only 317 of the craft being sold over the past decade. They say demand is expected to rise as major aviation hubs become more congested and uh, airlines seek to maximise in- increasingly scarce access to runways and departure gates. It's a shame, but you know they have had a bit of a rough patch over the last have, couple of years. Malaysian, um, not. You know, not no, by no fault of their own. Well, exactly. Um, it's just uh, it's it's one of those things, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, with the competition that they have in in Asia and the you know the Pacific sort of side mm-hmm. of things that they've got. Um, but just looking at at uh, their fleet, um, it's mostly made up of Boeing aircraft. Right. Um, they've got um, quite a few triple sevens, seven three seven eight hundreds, which yeah. uh, you you've been on yourself. Indeed. Um, they do have some A three thirties. Um, um, for their medium and long haul routes, and obviously, as the story says, they have got some A three eighties. Which, yeah. um, but they've actually their fleet, as you said, their fleet size. So you said it was just over a hundred mm. as of um, this month. Um, they've just updated on online. Uh, they've got ninety eight active with right. twenty one stored. Really? Yeah, aircraft. Gosh. Yeah, um, I mean, it, I mean, they, they, I, I, I mean, I've flown, I've flown with Malaysian Airlines, mm. and, and I mean, their their safety record was absolutely yeah. unrivaled, wasn't it? Until, and the service was great yeah. as well. And as I say, to to be fair to them, I mean, <laughs> there's no way that they can in any way be blamed for the plane being shot out of the 
the sky. I mean, that could have been anyone, couldn't it? It just happened to be poor Malaysian Airways when mm. it happened. And uh, as I say, and, and I guess we'll ne- we never really will know what happened to MH370. Yeah, not after all this time, I don't suppose. But, uh, so there we go. That's yeah. uh, that was the last story then for yeah, uh, for fun. the start of the show for the commercial aviation yeah. side of things. Uh, we are going to break for our usual coffee cup of uh, cup of coffee. I think we do need a coffee today. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, and we've got t- we've still got PIP segment to come. Yes, and uh, we've got some military aviation news, and we've got some air show news as well. Some uh, big points to come up with the air shows. We've got Ooh. some uh, did, uh, some some uh, um, 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 I've forgotten the word for it now. I'm all half asleep. Some uh, big announcements. There we go. Ah, yes, gosh. for uh, for Riyadh especially as well. Oh, cool. And for another couple of air uh, shows that are coming up in the next few months. Mm. So, time for a cup of tea, yes. and we're going to come back to you after oh. this. Woo. Aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at planecrazydownunder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket, anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. <laughs> smell the fumes. I just thought it was what you put in the coffee. <laughs> well, that ended rather abruptly. <laughs> We're back then after a, a, a short coffee break. Mm. Uh, we've, yes. we've now got caffeine intake. Caffeine injection, that should help no end. We're, yes. we're both we're both lagging slightly today, I think, aren't we? <laughs> we That's are. Lack bit, of yes. sleep. Had lack a, of sleep. a busy few days for us all, mm. I think, really. So apologies to the listeners for it not being its usual sharp performance. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope you're enjoying it anyway. Indeed, yes, yes. So La- we've got... Laughing at us, I think. Oh, or, no. Or with us, let's say with us. With us, yes. with us. <laughs> we have uh, a military segment then to, uh, for you next, and yes. then we've got uh, a segment from Pip, Pip. and I'm in the air show it's news. Show so... News. Uh, if you're ready, Matt, we'll yes. start off with the military news. Let's go. So we've got uh, a few news stories to cover. And the mm. first one this week on Flight Global site, Russia to re-establish TU-160 supersonic bomber production line. So uh, the Russian Defense Ministry has confirmed that it will restart the production line for the Soviet-era Tupolev TU-160 Blackjack supersonic strategic bomber. 
In a series of tweets on the 29th of April, the ministry says it is necessary to resume production of the TU-160 missile carriers, adding that it is the best aircraft in its class. Tupolev is in the process of modernizing the Russian Air Force's TU-160 to an enhanced TU-160M standard. The first upgrade example has its uh, first flight on the 16th of November 2014 and was delivered in December 2014 alongside an upgraded TU-95MS Bear strategic bomber. Enhancement activity on the supersonic TU-160 includes partial replacement of the aircraft's avionics and weapons systems, Tupolev says. The Defence Ministry also tweets that Russian Air Force will receive two TU-160Ms and 12 long-range TU-22M3 bombers by the end of 2015. Upgraded in Kazan, the Russian Air Force has 13 TU-160s in service, with 14 on order. Uh, Flight Global's Milkas fleet's database shows. A second phase of modernization will begin in 2016 with the addition of upgraded Kutstanov NK-32 engines, Russian news agency uh, Itar TASS said in December. The Tu-60 is now Russia's only bomber in active production, and the restart of production is expected to bolster the Air Force's capability until its prospective aviation complex for long-range aviation. Uh, bomber begins production after the 2020. The PAK, uh, PAKDA is touted as a flying wing design that will eventually replace the Tu-160 and Tu-95. Wow. Yeah, so what, I've just, hey, been, just been looking at some some stats um, on the TU one sixty. Yeah, on the on the TU one sixty. Um, first flight was in uh, December nineteen eighty one, although they didn't actually go into service, believe it or not, until two thousand and five. Oh wow, a long gap. Um, there was what they call IOC, which uh, stands for immediate or cancel. There was an IOC order that was actually placed in nineteen eighty seven. Um, but for some reason, there was a very large delay between when they were ordered and when they went into into service. But it's again, primary user is the Russian Air Force, um, produced um, between 1984 and 1992. Then they started again in 2000, and uh, again in 2008. Mm. So it's it, it, is, not- it is a very popular aircraft. It's saying the 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 Tupolev one uh, Tu one sixty. Um, is a supersonic variable sweep swing heavy strategic bomber designed by the Tupolev Design Bureau in the Soviet Union. Although several civil and military transport aircraft are larger in overall, overall dimensions, the Tu-160 is the world's largest combat aircraft, and it's certainly the largest supersonic aircraft. Do it does know, look very Concordy. Oh, do you not? I was then you yeah. read my mind. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, the picture they've got on here on the uh, Flight Global site, mm. it, it looks. It's a hell of a nose cone, isn't it? Um, yeah, it looks. It just looks like the Concorde. Mm, it does. It does. Yeah. Well, and it is supersonic, isn't it? Yeah. So it, it certainly fits into certainly fits into that category. But uh, no, uh, Russia ever more um, um, yes. stretching stretching themselves out. <laughs> yes, then, uh, um, yes, so no doubt to come and flirt with our borders. With our borders, yes, <laughs> and, and t- titter with our um, uh, yeah, our Eurofighter typhoons. Yes. 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 Uh, 
That's, the next story. What could possibly go wrong there? <laughs> uh, okay, next story is uh, on the RAF, the Royal Air Force website, and the uh, headline is UK sends RAF Chinook helicopter to assist in Nepal. Obviously, it's been a terrible story in the news yeah. this, this yeah, week. Yeah, it's been very about, sad news uh, what happened there with the, the earthquake. earthquake and, yeah. uh, so the UK government is preparing to send three Royal Air Force uh, uh, CH-47 Chinook aircraft and providing funding for additional UN helicopters to assist the response to the recent earthquake in Nepal. International Development Secretary Justine Greening announced today, sent by the Department for International Development, the Chinook helicopters will travel to Nepal over the coming days by providing £2.5 million uh, to the UN's Humanitarian Air Service. Uh, The DFID will enable organisations already on the ground to immediately get aid supplies to the more isolated areas. The Chinooks will supplement this activity once they arrive in the country. The earthquake has left many of Nepal's roads blocked and vital infrastructure damaged. These these military and UN helicopters will help the British and the Nepalese um, respond by ferrying people and aid supplies across the Nepal's um, terrible now terrain and uh, ev- uh, enable humanitarian supplies to reach remote and hard-to-reach uh, communities where aid is desperately needed. Justin Greening said these highly versatile Royal Air Force helicopters and UN aircraft will mean life-saving aid supplies can be moved around Nepal and reach people in remote communities cut off by the earthquake who are in desperate need. Conditions in Nepal are dire, but the UK is determined to do everything it can to support Nepal and its people. The three CH-47 Chinook aircraft will be transported from RAF Bryce Norton to the region with one uh, Antonov aircraft uh, containing a Chinook departing earlier this afternoon. The UK government has pledged £15 million towards the relief efforts in Nepal so far. So it's, um, yeah. It's, it's great to see that, uh, you know, we can supply such a, a versatile yeah. mm. helicopter like the Chinook mm. over there, which um, is big, obviously, it? yeah. It's a beast. And it can carry, it, it can carry in, in like an under sling and carry, uh, like there's a, a, sl- a sling that hangs from underneath and it yeah. can carry various packages and, large, and, and large, large things, uh, yeah. you know, crates and stuff. Yeah. But also, you know, it, it's great that it can get into and out of, you know, quite sort of well, um, with, with tight such, spots. such a horrific um, earthquake, you've got no roads left, have you? No, it's it's, mean, shy. it's such a shame. It is, it is. But, but uh, well, um, one one of the few occasions where I, I'm 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 all for um, you know helping out really when it comes to yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, I am a little bit guilty of thinking that charity really begins at home, but uh, when it's something as mm. awful as as that, I think it is important the whole world pulls together really. To be but we're honest. not, yeah, exactly. We're not, the UK is not the only country that's helping no, out with this tragedy no, in Nepal. Right. There are no. many countries from around the world all sending aid into there to yeah. help them. So that's great. Let's hope they get um, things yes. uh, things better there. Well, so. if anyone can help them out, I'm sure us Brits can. Yes. <laughs> we'll take them some tea over. Yes, that'll make everything fine. Yes. <laughs> I haven't got a house to live in, but at least I have good old-fashioned English breakfast tea. tea exactly. Yes. <laughs> Moving on, their next story, Flight Global again. Uh, Pratt & Whitney fights US government criticisms of the F-35 engine reliability. So Pratt & Whitney's uh, F-135 fighter engine that powers the Lockheed Martin F-35s is uh, the target of two new U.S. government reports criticizing the propulsion system's very poor reliability and 61 non-conformalities with the Pratt & Whitney's own and Department of Defense's quality management procedures. 
The findings by the US Government uh, Accountability Office and the DOD Inspector General appear less than two months before the US Marine Corps prepares to declare initial operational capability with the first F-35B squadron. But Pratt & Whitney argues that the GAO is uh, mischaracterizing the F-135's reliability data and the IG report's findings about the company's management system do not reflect the quality of the end product. The engine is reliable and we continue trying to make it more reliable, Bennett Croswell, president of Pratt & Whitney's military engines business, told reporters on the 27th of April. The GAA reported on the 14th of April, however, that key uh, reliability metric for the 135, the mean flight hours between component failures, is tracking well behind the planned growth curve. At this point, the in development, that curve suggests that the conventional takeoff and landing version of the engine should operate more than 100 flight hours between failures, the GAO said. Fleet data shows the fleet averages a failure roughly every 25 hours. The short takeoff and vertical landing version of the engine should be averaging around 90 flight hours between failures, but averages closer to 45, the GAO says. Croswell acknowledges the accuracy of the GAO's numbers, but says that the report does not reflect the overall picture of the 135's reliability record. Although mean flight hours between component failures is uh, below expectations, two other key reliability metrics mean flight hours between removals and full mission capability rate is running above expected levels, Croswell says. Moreover, the uh, Pratt & Whitney's ground-based testing of the production configuration shows that versions should meet current reliability targets once it enters flight operations later this year, Croswell says. Although the IG uh, was sharply critical of Pratt & Whitney's quality management system, Croswell says the company stands by a commercially derived program that it has adapted for the F-135. Now, the issue for me with this story is my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that um, it's all about fl- flight hours, isn't it, in, mm. in aviation, whether it be military or otherwise. And if you've got a, a new engine that you're developing, it's like, you know, they're aiming for, for 90 hours before there's any kind of failure, you know, fl- 90 flight hours before there's any kind yeah. of problem with the engine. Yeah. And it's averaging 45 I mean, you can spin those numbers however you like, but when the industry runs on flight hours, mm. you know, because that's how you, you, you measure your experience and reliability and things like that. I mean, it's not good enough, is it? I mean, it's half no. what it should be, essentially. It, 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 they do. I mean, they obviously need to improve and find they out what, what's causing yeah. They these really need to get to the bottom issues of it. And stuff. Mm. Because, the, the, you know, these uh, the military services are waiting for this aircraft to... Yeah. To, they're, they're wanting to use it, you yeah, know. absolutely, um, including it, us in the UK. Indeed, yeah, this this is um, more of a um, a Harrier replacement, isn't it? Yeah, it's got that same yeah. sort of. It has, it's yeah, a great yeah, for yeah. Much, you know, we have any aircraft now. hangers? Not that we have any carriers. Carriers, yes, we don't yeah. have any of those. We don't have any of those. No. no, so it's not an issue for us at this current time, but may well be. No, soon. we we got rid of all ours. Yes, 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 yes. we're so good like that. Yeah, yeah. It's very sensible. Anyway, before we all sent off to the tower, the next story. This is military aerospace. Uh, is the website and the headline Air Force orders nine multispectral targeting systems for the French military forces. Uh, Wright Patterson AFB, Ohio, Ohio. Um, that's the 27th, 27th of April 2015 is the story. And the US Air Force electro optics experts are helping the government of France acquire airborne forward looking infrared uh, turreted sensors for long range surveillance and target acquisition for NATO laser-guided munitions. 
Officials of the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, announced a one, an $11.7 million contract to the Raytheon Co. on Friday to provide nine multispectral targeting systems, as well as high-definition electronic units and containers. The, the Raytheon Space and Airborne Systems segment in McKinney, Texas, will build the nine MTS-B airborne infrared sensors to help French forces with forward-looking infrared turreted sensor capability that provides long-range surveillance, high-altitude target acquisition, tracking, range-finding, and laser, design laser designation for all NATO laser-guided munitions. The Raytheon MTS can be fitted to the C-130 fixed-wing aircraft, the MH-60 helicopter and the medium-altitude long-endurance MQ-9 Reaper Hunter Killer unmanned aerial vehicle UAV. The deal is a modification of a $191 million contract the Air Force awarded to Raytheon two years ago for the MTS-B sensors uh, HD electronic units, containers and spare parts. Friday's contract modification to the Raytheon involves foreign military sales to France. The Raytheon MTS is a turreted forward-looking pod combining several visible light uh, and infrared video cameras for long-range surveillance and high-altitude target acquisition, tracking and laser designation. Multi-spectral sensors uh, captures image data at specific frequencies and separate the wavelengths to extract information the human eye fails to capture with its receptors for red, green and blue. It can detect things like uh, disturbed dirt and can be effective in finding targets hidden in camouflage. The MTS offers a combination of sensors that include multi-wavelength sensors, near-infrared and colour daylight TV cameras, luminators, eye-safe rangefinders, image merging, spot trackers and familiar uh, sorry and similar other avionics Raytheon officials say the system offers surveillance target acquisition tracking range finding and laser designation for the hellfire missile and for all tri-service and nato laser guided munitions such as the paveway laser guided bomb the advanced targeting forward looking infrared this is like a this is like a tongue twist to this story isn't it so the advanced targeting forward looking infrared pod also is used and used with pathway jsow and the harm bombs and missiles the mts sensors carry the military designations of aas-52 aas-53 asq-228 DAS-1 and DAS-2. On the MTS contract announced Friday, Raytheon will do the work in McKinney, Texas and should be finished by September 2016. Anyone um, wondering yes. what, exactly what Matt's been chatting about? I've been reading it and I have the, no um, <laughs> the Raytheon MTS, it, it's, uh, to, to put it in a, in a kind of a, an easy sort of term, it's... it's um, for those of you who've seen the the Apaches and that that have these yes. big um, round rotating camera kind yes. of domes, domes underneath, on the bottom, yeah. and obviously police cameras have the similar sort they of do. thing and, and and stuff and the heat um, imaging and all heat sorts, imaging yeah. stuff. They're, they are that's what they are essentially right. are they are a uh, detection range finding and uh, oh. you know system that uh, that can be put on quite a few different platforms as it says. Oh. Uh, including um, sort of maritime aircraft as well, surveillance aircraft. 
and um, the cameras, as it says, are they are really like massively high, yeah, um, quality sort of cameras, imaging yeah. cameras, ultra HD, uh, right? yeah, ultra, yeah, yeah for mm. for finally detecting stuff, and uh, and the cameras are that powerful, they can detect range and and everything as well. And, and, fantastic and sort of, you know, bits the, of kit. Even if the Earth has been disturbed, the detail is there. You yeah, can see, yeah, wow, it's fantastic, isn't it? It is absolutely. So next story then, moving on, uh, one of our uh, ones close to home here in the yeah. UK, uh, the Royal Air Force's site, this one, and um, the headline, Raw, uh, Red Arrows and new team leader begin 2015 season uh, uh, following their uh, display approval. So uh, nine after, or so after months of training, the Red Arrows 2015 display season is officially getting underway, with a new team leader taking over this year. The uh, Royal Air Force Aerobatic Display Team was uh, formally awarded its Public Display Authority, or PDA, uh, early this week. Was it ever in doubt? I mean... <laughs> I, 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 it, you would it, hope that it... Yeah. I can't honestly think they would say no, <laughs> no, no to the indeed. Red Arrows no. somehow. Not when, not when it's their 51st year. No, know. <laughs> I know. Um, it marks, as Matt just said, it marks the start of the 51st season for the team, which showcases the excellence of the Royal Air Force and represents the United Kingdom. Yay. More than 80 displays involving precision flying by the Red Arrows, nine fast jet pilots, are expected to be performed in front of hundreds of thousands of people across the country and overseas between now and the end of September. The new season will be the first as team uh, leader for squadron leader David Montenegro. The 38-year-old was uh, previously in the squadron as a team pilot between 2009 and 2011 and has returned to the team as Red One. Mm. He said the award of Public Display Authority, or PDA, is the culmination of seven months of tireless training by the team pilots, precision engineering by our technicians and constant effort by all members of the squadron. On behalf of all the team, we are hugely looking forward to performing a 2015 display and meeting members of the UK public throughout the next five months. Following the approval, the pilots were allowed to change from their green coveralls used during training and into their famous red flying suits, which are worn during the season. Uh, all Red Arrow pilots are from frontline squadrons and before joining the team operate jets such as the Tornado or the Typhoon helping the Royal Air Force secure the skies and protect the United Kingdom and its interests at all hours, 365 days a year. Gaining the uh, PDA was a poignant day for the pilots joining the team for the first time in 2015. Flight Lieutenants Mike Bowden, Emmett Cox and Tom Bould. Uh, squadron leader Montenegro, who is responsible for all aspects of the display, from running the training programme to creating the routines and leading the team, said... Donning the red suit for the first time is a memorable and very proud moment for all the team, pilots, especially for those in their first year. Personally, it's a great achievement, however, as a team, our minds are immediately focused on the forthcoming season where we will have the opportunity to represent the Royal Air Force, uh, Her Majesty's Armed Forces and indeed the UK. Training for the new season began in October last year at the Red Arrows home base of RAF Scampton in Lincolnshire. Beginning with small groups of three or four aircraft, training develops with flying uh, pilots flying three times a day, five days a week, until the team's full nine-ship formation comes together around February-March. 
The final part of the PDA process took place at the Hellenic Air Force Base uh, HAF in Tangra, Greece this week. Here, the Red Arrows have been carrying out overseas training and taking advantage of the area's fine weather conditions <laughs> to allow the team perfect 21-minute show. What, you mean you can't get that here in the I UK? Know. Oh, I know. It's lovely out there today. Shock, yeah. The uh, Royal Air Force's Deputy Commander Operations Air Marshal Greg Bagwell and Air Officer Commanding uh, 22 Training Corps Air Vice Marshal Andrew Turner observed all aspects of the team on the ground and in the air, including five separate displays. Well, lucky them. Mm. This is to ensure the team satisfies the highest safety standards and is, and is performing the display that is a credit to both the service and the UK. In keeping with other Royal Air Force units, a huge team effort is required to allow the Red Arrows to display from flight operation personnel and engineering technicians to administrations and uh, other people as well within the team. So this is uh, great news then, uh, Matt, that they've uh, they've got this uh, PDA. Yeah. Um, it's, can you imagine, like, you, I mean, the Red Arrows is just famous the world over, isn't yeah. it? I mean, can you imagine, like, you, you going to go and fly for the Red Arrows for the very first time? I really hope we get a chance to speak to one of these new pilots because I have so many questions I want to like, ask. We'll, we'll try it, react. What on yeah. earth must go through that, those guys' heads? You know, I mean, you must be an amazing pilot before you're even considered. I have no doubt, oh, yes. but I mean, I mean, just wow, just wow. That must be a really proud, proud moment. It is, and with the aircraft as well, mm. uh, with that awesome tile with the, uh, yes. the flag on yeah, there, it's yeah. really great. That's absolutely it's fantastic. Synonymous, synonymous with the UK, isn't it? It's yes, a fantastic yes. Flag. We look forward to that. So we haven't got a top uh, ten for this week, but we have got a top seven. Right. Okay. Yes, uh, and this is. Uh, Flight Global, the, the, the headline is Heavy Metal Heroes, the world's seven biggest Air Force bomber fleets. The Cold War days of nuclear-armed big bombers patrolling on a hair trigger are hopefully very much long behind us. Mm. But long-range strike capability remains an air power priority, with Russia restarting the Tupolev Tu-160, which we covered earlier uh, in the show, and Boeing upgrading its B-1Bs. Here's our survey of the world's biggest long-range bomber fleets based on data drawn from Flight Global's Millicast database. So, in at number seven. So, at number seven, an aircraft we were just talking about, the Tupolev Tu-160. Uh, as we said, Moscow is to relaunch production of this uh, variable geometry T-160, describing the Blackjack as the best aircraft in its class. Uh, the data suggests a current active fleet of 13, including an upgraded T-160M, uh, with another 14 in line to be manufactured. Mm, number six. At number six, it's the Northrop Grumman B-2. Uh, the B-2 stealth bomber is the most expensive aircraft ever produced with a unit cost in excess of $1 billion. That cost ensured plenty of controversy in, uh, controversy in Washington, <laughs> even among the Joint Chiefs of Staff, especially as it did not enter service until 1997, long after the demise of the Soviet Union. It was meant to attack, although B-2 saw non-nuclear service in Kosovo, Iraq and Afghanistan. The type's highlight was probably a 2008 crash after takeoff from Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. The aircraft was destroyed, but the two-man crew survived to tell the tale of what was probably the most expensive crash in aviation history. It looks so much like a spaceship, doesn't it? Because it, it doesn't look yeah. like an aeroplane, really, does it? It's a, it's a kind bizarre-looking thing. It's just kind of a wing. 
with what, a with what, a cockpit. What was the thing? Oh, the black something or other that you could that couldn't be seen by radar. What was that? Oh yes, yes. Uh, the uh, um, uh, um, black um, something anyway. Yes, I know what you answers mean. Answers on a postcard. Answers, please, answers on a postcard. Yes. Anyway, at number five, <laughs> <laughs> at number five, the Tupolev Tu ninety five. This is something that's been in the news quite frequently over the last few months Has it? Why? because uh, they keep flying these over over here to say hello oh, to us. Right? Yes, yes, very kind of them. Yes, flirting with our borders. Yes. Yes. More <laughs> commonly referred to by its NATO reporting name as the Bear. Uh, it's a regular site for quick reaction alert pilots with numerous alliance air forces. Additional examples of the prop jet powered type are being upgraded to extend their service lives until the availability of Moscow's replacement PAC DA strategic bomber. Nice picture there of uh, one of our uh, Eurofighter Typhoons escorting one of these yes. uh, bears <laughs> away. Yes. Get out. Get out. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, fresh in at number four. And number four, the Boeing B1B. Uh, this type will mark its 30th anniversary of service with the USAF later this year. Conceived in the 1960s as a Mac 2 replacement for the B-52, the Rockwell, uh, later Boeing B-1B Lancer, was ultimately developed as a long-range, low-level penetrator capable of uh, Mac 1.25 at high altitude. Boeing is undertaking an upgrade program to install an up all digital cockpit and connect the bombers to a global communications network. Number three. Number three, another Russian one, the tuple of Tu-22M, nicknamed Backfire, hmm, interesting name, <laughs> by NATO. The swing wing Tu-22M perform, uh, forms part of the Russian Air Force's strategic bomber force. Number two. At number two, a massive icon here, the Boeing B-52. Ah, the B-52. Famed for its memorable role in Dr. Strangelove, the B-52 remains a key frontline type for the U.S. Air Force, which still uses the H-model version. The type has been in USAF service since 1955. Wow. Featuring heavily in Vietnam and even in the U.S. space program as the air launch platform for the X-15 rocket planes. You see, I thought B fifty two was just just a pop group from the eighties. I didn't realise they were. <laughs> oh, you're just too stuck in your love shack. <laughs> very, oh well, oh. very very good. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, enough of this. Ah, finally, at number one. At number one, then uh, there's a hundred and fifty of these in service. The Harbin H six. Uh, China's uh, Air Force has a fleet of around 120 aged H-6 bombers in which are in use, while its Navy is also believed to have approximately 30 in its inventory. Wow. This is, uh, I mean, this is a, a bit like, looking it's a bit like the it? Bear, yeah. but slightly smaller yeah. and is powered by jets rather than, uh, rather than prop. prop. Yeah, yeah. Cool. but uh, no, cool. So there we go. There's our uh, rundown of seven of uh, of those uh, military heavy metal heroes. Indeed, and that brings our military section to, to a, a close. close. Time now for our next uh, section, and some, something that I always look forward to. Uh, it's time to welcome back to our, our little podcast the legend that is Pilot Pip. Uh, this week in his little uh, section, he is talking about the hoops that he has to jump through in order to keep his licence current. And now, it's time to visit the cockpit and join the man who puts the S in safe. It's the plane safety from the flight deck segment with Captain Pip. Hello everyone, it's Pip here. In the last few segments, we've been looking at all the various checks that I do. The pre-flight checks, we looked at the checks on the outside of the aircraft, and then we looked at the cockpit setup checks. 
And I was thinking, well, what other sorts of checks are there? And actually, there are a whole bunch of other ones that we have to go through as pilots. So checks on us. There are many hoops we have to jump through and barrels to jump over to keep our licenses valid and current. And actually, it's coming up for that time of year for me right now when I have to start going through some of these proficiency checks in which I need to demonstrate to my employer that I'm still capable and able and competent to do my job. So what are some of the checks we have to go through? Well, every year we have to pass uh, an annual medical check. And then we have to do what I've got coming up in a couple of weeks, possibly even next week, is a line check, an annual line check. And then we also have our every six months an LPC or an OPC check in the simulator, plus a few other ones. So I thought I'd go through and just tell you a little bit about each of those. So let's start with the medical. Now, as it happens, I just completed my annual medical yesterday. So that's out of the way for another year. Few. But actually, it's not a, it's not a great challenge. What we have to have as professional pilots is a class one medical. And initially, to get your first class one medical, you have to go down to the CAA medical headquarters at Gatwick Airport. And this is a pretty well a whole day event in which they prod you with needles. They stick things on your head. They flash lights at you to see if you're epileptic. They do some very thorough eye exams, color vision exams, hearing tests. It's quite an in-depth day out. And they give you a, a thorough going over to make sure you're fit and able to operate an aircraft. But assuming you are, then you'll be issued a class one medical certificate, which then needs to be renewed every year. But rather than have to go down to the medical headquarters at Gatwick each year to do it, you can actually go and see a local aeromedical examiner. And there are lots of them dotted around the country. There's quite a few near me. And every year when we renew the medical, we well, it depends on the doctor a little bit, I suppose, but it's nothing near as in-depth as the initial class one check so exactly what they do depends a little bit on your age and the frequency at which certain things need to be checked so for example for me as under 40 years old just i have to do a ecg every two years you know the ecg is where they stick the little monitors on your chest and monitor your heartbeat so that's something i do every two years an audiogram a hearing test i do every five years I also have to do a little blood test, a blood haemoglobin test. That's a little finger prick and they take a sample of blood. And of course, the things they check every year will be your eyesight, uh, blood pressure, basic medical history and fitness. But as you get older, some of these things do change. So for instance, once I hit 40 and above, then you have to do an ECG every year rather than every two years. And once you get to, I believe it's 60 years old, you then have to do a medical check every six months rather than once a year. Now, it's pretty rare, I understand, to lose a medical certificate outright. You may have one suspended due to an illness or, you know, if you've had cancer or something like that. Uh, But it's pretty unusual to have the medical certificate taken away for good. It may be temporarily revoked whilst you're recovering, but the CAA certainly don't want to be taking people's medicals away if they don't need to be. So the option's usually there to, to get it back if for some reason you can't pass a medical test one year. Touchwood, so far I'm good to go. The only thing that was new and made me chuckle a little bit this year in yesterday's exam is just chatting to the doctor while he was plugging on the uh, the electrodes to do the, a- the ECG. And he said, so Pip, everything all right at home? I said, yes, doctor. And he said, uh, family well, not causing you too much stress? I said, oh, you know, just the usual amount. And he said, OK, so uh, you're not feeling suicidal at all? You don't want to kill yourself or anyone else? And I went, aha, OK, I see where this line of questions going. No, I feel 100% A-OK. And he says, oh, well, that's good, because 
we're now required to ask everyone coming through if they have any psychological issues, obviously in the wake of the German Wings incident. So that's something new. But anyway, that's a medical check, just one of those hoops we have to jump through. And then the next thing I've got coming up, as I say, probably next week or in the next few weeks, certainly, is my annual line check. So what's a line check? Well, this is an an operational check on the aircraft out on the line. So it's an everyday flight. I get teamed up with what we call a line training captain. And I will go off and I fly with him for a couple of days. Just nothing special. Just go off flying normal trips with passengers. And except a couple of them, two of those flights will be assessed. He will have a form and he'll uh, have some tick boxes and he'll just be looking at me as a pilot to check all aspects of my operational knowledge, uh, how I go about the job, uh, how my SOPs are, how I how closely I stick to the books. And so he'll assess two flights, one as me as pilot flying and one with me as pilot monitoring. So those flights where I'm you know, doing the radio, doing the paperwork. And then he'll go through and he'll then has a lot of uh, tick boxes to, to tick. And we have a scale of zero to four, zero being a big fat fail and four being exceptional. And then he'll write a little, I don't know, two or three hundred word report at the end of it. And hopefully he'll say something like, Pilot Pip is awesome. I wish I could be just like him. Well, he hasn't written that yet, but uh, maybe this year, you never know. But it's generally no big deal. Some people tend to really get worried and nervous and, and build up a bit of a sweat when these things are coming around. But I'm personally, I'm pretty relaxed about it. I'm reasonably confident in my ability, so uh, it doesn't phase me too much. But still, it would be unwise of me not to prepare a little. So over the coming days, I'll probably get the books out and just review a few systems and uh, just go through my operations manual, double check the uh, the letter of the law regarding SOPs. Because some of the debrief items, they're usually things like uh, maybe some of the call-outs, I got the, the words in the wrong order. And sometimes they can be quite anal about it, depends on exactly who's checking you. But for instance, I remember one year being pulled up on, because I when I called for flaps, I said flap 25 and not flaps 25. All right, a very minor point, you might say. And actually, that's a good thing. If that's the only thing he can find to uh, pull me up on, then I'm a happy man. They may also, during the course of the check, throw in a couple of technical questions you know, maybe a few what if scenarios. What if we lost all our hydraulics at this point? Or, you know, what if we lost this system? What options are we left with, etc.? But as I say, it's it's an everyday flight. There's nothing special. We're certainly not looking at engine failures or anything like that, because, of course, we've got passengers in the back. So as far as they're aware, there's nothing different that's going on at all. It's just a paperwork exercise, really. So we have one of those once a year. And throughout the year, also, we sometimes have what we call a standardization trip or tour we have as well as line training captains we also have standards captains and it's their job just to enforce standards out on the line so you may find yourself paired up with one of these guys and they're just there not to assess but to guide and advise you know if there's anything you're not quite doing right they'll point it out and you can you know improve on that okay so moving on the other big checks that we do every six months we go to the simulator And there's a number of checks that we undergo for this. Firstly, in preparation for going to the simulator, we have what we call phased recurrence. So over, I think it's a three-year cycle, we go through every six months, each phase will look at a particular set of systems with the aircraft, so hydraulics or engine systems, electrics, pneumatics, etc. So over the course of three years, we'll gradually go through and look at each one of these systems. And then after three years, the whole process starts again and we'll start repeating. So as part of the preparation, we we get sent, it's all online, we get sent a whole big bunch of information, some books and manuals that we're meant to brush up on. 
and there's also an online exam that we must pass. It's usually about 30 or so questions, 10 technical questions on the aircraft, 10 questions from our operations manual part A, which is our sort of general policies, if you like, and then 10 questions from our operations manual part B, which is the aircraft type specific manual. And usually uh, it can be a bit challenging. Some of the some of the questions they set are quite sneaky. They do make you think and, uh, you know, really test your understanding. But you, you have to pass that. I think the pass marks around 90% usually. So that's something we have to do before we attend the, the simulator and training sessions. And then when the time comes, we go down to our training centre at Farnborough Airport. And it's usually a four, sometimes a five day event, which is quite unusual. At most airlines, it's probably a one or a two day event at the most. But uh, we're quite good at, in that way at Safe Jets. We do plough quite a lot of resources into training and checking. So we go down. Day one then is normally a classroom day. So we go into the classroom with an instructor and a blackboard. And we will go through and just revise and refresh some key systems. So like I say, the landing gear perhaps, or the engines, or the avionics, something like that. We'll go through and have a good look. And then we'll look at some of the failures and some of the problems we might have with those particular systems. So that's day one. Then day two will be the first simulator session. This will be a, a one hour briefing in the morning and then it will be a four hour session. This is purely just a training session at this point. It's not assessed. So it'll be two hours as pilot flying and two hours as pilot not flying. And in this session, we'll just go through and we'll do practical exercises looking at those systems we had revised the day before. So we'll look at failures to do with the landing gear. Perhaps we'll practice some you know, landings with the gear up or or just practicing using the emergency extension systems, or look at some pressurization failures, this sort of thing. And then after that, there'll be then another classroom session, which will go back, finish up a few systems, a few odds and bods, and then there's another written exam. Usually not too taxing, just some specific questions on those systems that we've been looking at. So that's the end of day two. Day three then is another four-hour sim session, and this is the, the first of the assess sessions and it will be our either OPC, Operator's Proficiency Check, or LPC, the License Proficiency Check. The LPC is the mandatory one. That's the one that gets sent to the CAA. The other one is just something the company, it's an extra bit of training that they like to do. It's not a mandated bit of, of assessed work. And this SEM session, it generally follows a pretty standard format. You'll be given a plan, a flight plan, a passenger loading, some fuel, and you'll be going off from airport A to B. But you know that you're going to get the first thing's probably going to be an aborted takeoff, a high-speed abort. You'll then be reset at the beginning of the runway. You'll do a departure and you'll get an engine failure at V1. And you'll then climb up, you'll do all the engine failure drills. The weather typically is right at or below minimas. And if it's not, then the instructor will manipulate the weather so that you have to perform a diversion. You'll then have to go through, run all the checklists, and you'll have to fly and execute a variety of approaches, all single engine. So you'll need to do a single engine non-precision approach, for instance. You'll then have to do a single engine go around. The situation will be manipulated so that you'll then go around and fly a single engine ILS approach. You'll then go around again from that and you'll have to fly a single engine visual approach. And there'll probably be some other failures as well. Some uh, he has The instructor has a list of possible scenarios and failures that he can introduce to the session. So there might be some electrical failures, for instance. So you have to deal with those. So you'll do that for a couple of hours, you'll then swap and you'll then become pilot flying if you were the pilot monitoring before and you pretty well do the whole same thing again. And that's a pretty taxing, hard four hours. But hopefully all will go well and you'll get a glowing report 
the examiner will obviously again he's got a lot of boxes to tick he'll write a little report as you as well commenting on your crm abilities your uh, management levels your leadership qualities you know he's not just looking at the ta- technical aspects of how you fly the aircraft but also how you interact as a crew how you deal with problems what sort of a pi- you know what sort of character you are and usually i find that to be a pretty pleasant and uh, rewarding experience so that's the end of day 3 day 4 and sometimes day 5 then is another assessed situation or at least some of it is we're back in the sim with four hour sim sessions and this time we're doing what we call a loft line orientated flying training and what this will be well we won't know the scenario it will just be a normal flight you'll be given a flight package with a you know fuel loading your destination where you're going nothing different so you'll jump in prepare the aircraft as normal or the simulator as normal and off you go and then something will happen during that flight some pre-planned scenario will happen and they're assessing you to watch to see how you deal with it so i remember one year we had the scenario was a passenger has a heart attack uh last year it was quite an interesting one we were doing meant to be doing a very short flight from paris no an airport just outside paris to paris charles de gaulle but the situation is manipulated such that you have to perform a missed approach uh, on the approach to Charles de Gaulle uh, in very bad weather, thunderstorms, and you have a lightning strike during the missed approach which knocks out your communications. So you've then got to, as a crew, decide what you're going to do with no comms. Are you going to you know, return to Charles de Gaulle? Are you going to go to your alternate? Quite an interesting scenario, that one. And then we've had other ones involving fuel imbalances or low fuel situations. So that's the loft. And again, that's an assessed exercise. And there's no often there's no wrong or right answer. You may have uh, five different crews come up with five different solutions, and that's fine. It's a, it's a very good learning experience. And then the other thing we're doing in this session, so that will normally take an hour or so, the loft. We're then using the remaining time or the extra sim session the following day to complete our special airports training. There's a number of airports we go to at SafeJets which require special simulator training uh, to enable you to be qualified to fly into and out of those airports. So there's a whole list of them, and, and, and all pilots are are qualified on just a handful. It, there are too many for to be qualified on all of them. So typically, you'll be qualified on two or three. So for instance, London City requires special simulator training. Uh, Funchal in Madeira is another one. Uh, many of the Swiss airports, the Alpine airports. Uh, Innsbruck's another good one. It's always fun doing the training into Innsbruck. It's a beautiful airport down inside a valley with very steep mountainous terrain on either side of it. So that needs a bit of uh, specialist training. And it's mostly looking at the engine failure procedures. What happens if you get an engine failure out in these mountainous areas? And the instructors, they're not always, but they're usually safe jet uh, employees. Our own instructors and examiners come down. Uh, and every so often we'll also have one of the senior guys come in just to, to have a look to see what's going and to make sure things are being taught correctly. And then just occasionally as well we'll have the CAA themselves come in and watch what we're doing. So that always piles the pressure on just a little bit. But all in all, it's a pretty good, relaxed, enjoyable, fun experience. Some people, yeah, they tend to roll their eyes at this. You do it every six months. So if you've been at the company, as I have for nearly eight years, you've done it 16 times now. So it does tend to get a little bit repetitive, but you, you know you take out of it what you put in. If you do the work and you're eager to learn something, then I think it can be a good experience. But certainly from a training point of view, it definitely keeps us current. So that's basically all the big checks we do. There's a few other ones we do. As a company, we go down to our headquarters once a year 
it's an opportunity to meet our managers, meet our fleet managers, meet some of the uh, those secondary departments like HR and finance and I don't know catering and customer services and all this it gives us a chance to to meet and swap ideas or or generally just moan at each other actually. And we also do a little bit of training, uh, CRM training. We also do our SEP training whilst we're down there, our safety and emergency procedures. This is where we'll go and sit in a cockpit mock-up and we'll look at all the, our fire extinguishers, the different smoke hoods that we have, um, and some of the other, you know, life jackets, things like that. And we'll go into our smoke simulator. It's a, basically an old fuselage that they found on a, a trash heap somewhere. And they put it in a hangar and, and they fill it up with smoke and we go inside and we, you know, pretend the thing's on fire. We'll have dummy fire extinguishers and we'll practice our smoke drills. And these sorts of things actually are mandated. Uh, every airline once a year has to do some form of smoke training. And I think every two years you have to actually use a real fire extinguisher to put out a real fire. Uh, and to do this, we basically go down to a local airport. They get a big barrel, they fill it full of uh, aviation fuel and set it on fire. And you each take it in turns to take a fire extinguisher and put the fire out. It's a bit of a silly exercise. It's really not, not very realistic, but it it does tick that legal box. Anyway, I think that about covers it all. I'll be back hopefully next week with another segment. But for now, it's back to Matt and Carlos in the studio. So over to you, boys. Bye. Thank you for that, Pip. Hey. You legend. Absolutely. I'm, I've got a name check. I'm very excited. I know. <laughs> I get all goosebumpy. <laughs> It's like it's like Pip is kind of, is, is kind of royalty. He's royalty, <laughs> he is isn't he? He's a so. pilot, you see. He is, he's real. He he's flies planes. Pilot, yes. yes, yes. Don't forget, you can uh, you can catch Pip on his own show at the Plane Safety Podcast. You can yeah. find him on iTunes. Download his latest show. I uh, just li- recently um, listened this week to his latest episode, which was all on the Kegworth Air Disaster. Oh right, um, which is fantastic, absolutely brilliant. He literally took the whole the whole. Um, the you know, the um, crash itself and just just literally broke it down and went through from literally from the start right to the finish of the whole investigation and, that. and it was it was brilliant absolutely thoroughly enjoyed that oh, pip yeah. um, I, should, I shall make sure I listen to that next week yes yeah, so thanks again for that pip for uh, giving bringing us that uh, segment for this week's show and uh, yeah we hopefully we'll have another segment from pip next week fingers crossed yes so we have uh, some uk air show news uh, for you for this week and uh, the first piece of news is regarding the air tattoo Aha. where me and matt will be going and uh, the latest news which came up this week was that the air tattoo are going to welcome the delta force um so the the delta force is um one of the most spectacular fast jet displays on the european circuit uh, the french air force's ramex delta team of two dassault mirage 2000n strike aircraft um are going to provide a, a dramatic and noisy uh, role demonstration at the tattoo uh, which is at uh, as we've said before is at RAF Fairford in the Cotswolds on July the 17th through to the 19th mm-hmm. Um, they're going to put on an absolutely mega display um, with their Delta Wing Mirage 2000 aircraft. And uh, it'll be great to see them doing the display, which I haven't actually seen yet. Mm. So that'd be great. Um, so I bet it's going to be noisy. It'll be no- oh, definitely noisy. <laughs> yeah. They are definitely noisy. I bet. Uh, other news we've got as well for uh, the Royal Naval Yeovilton Air Day. Uh, classic jet icons uh, for the uh, for the air day from the mighty Avril Vulcan to the feisty MiG-15 classic jet aircraft 
We're going to be out in force. Uh, they're going to be there at the Royal Naval Air Station, Yelverton, mm. on uh, the International Air Day on Saturday the 11th of July. Cool. We should be there. Mm. Um, we, we won't be there. I won't be there, Where's unfortunately. That? It's at uh, Yelverton. Oh, Yelverton. Sorry. Uh, I won't be there for that. I'm, not, I'm unfortunately booked for that day, oh, so I shan't be there. Um, but there's going to be loads of other aircraft there as well. Um, the former fleet defence fighter, um, 899, a naval air squadron, mm. markings on the Sea Vixen. Uh, there's going to be a whole host of aircraft there at uh, the uh, the air station Yeovilton International Air Displays. Don't forget that's on Saturday the 11th of July. Um, and the Vulcan as well, obviously, will be hopefully in the air as I, well. I did, I did see the Vulcan at, at Waddington. Actually, I say see, I more heard it. Uh, it's a really loud plane. They're very loud. Enough to give you a headache. <laughs> um, also, we have as well on the 3rd of May, mm-hmm. which is uh, not far away. Starting today. It's actually starting today. Is, is it a day? My watch is, mm. I need to wind my watch on here. The dates are right <laughs> Uh, but the uh, yes, uh, the Shuttleworth one on the third at Old Warden, Bedfordshire, which mm. um, which is going to be a great show as well. Moving later on into May, on the twenty third and twenty fourth of May, it's the VE Day anniversary oh, air show yeah. at Duxford, Cambridgeshire. We, mu- we must try and get to that. If we we can. yeah, we're going to have to try and get to yeah, that. We'll have we to are. converge yeah. our diaries together. Indeed, yes. Um, there's going to be a massive, massive list of aircraft there at the VE and uh, Day anniversary air show, mm. ranging from everything from from the Red Arrows, which are going to be Me. there on the Sunday, only Lovely. on the Sunday. Okay. Um, right, well, we're going on Sunday. We're then. going on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Eurofighter Typhoons, uh, they'd they be Spitfires, yeah. uh, Hurricanes, um, Dakotas, Nimrod uh, is the Hawk and Nimrod, or Fury. Mm. The uh, B-17, the Sally B, uh, which okay. most a lot of people have seen that. Yeah. Uh, along with the usual Dragon Rapides, which will probably be doing their, um, their pleasure flights there during mm. during a day. The PBY Catalina will be there. Uh, P-51 Mustangs. Yeah. Uh, along with the Grumman uh, two FM two Wildcat as well, so that is going to be a awesome day. And to be fair, I mean Duxford in general has some cracking static displays. So if you ha- if yes. you haven't been to Duxford, I would I would recommend it, uh, and I would recommend it over the Imperial War Museum they've got in London. Yes, it really is so much before. better, so much better. So at the end of May, uh, just to cover just May in this episode, we'll mm-hmm. just cover May um, on the twenty fourth of May. Um, don't forget. It's going to be an awesome one. I'm gutted that I cannot go to this one. The Cold War Jets Open Day at Bruntingforth mm. Proving Grounds in Leicestershire. Um, that's uh, that's going to be awesome because they're, mm. they're not going to be flying, but they're going to be um, sort of ground running. Yeah. I think these okay. aircraft. Some of these. So you really get to hear fan- them at least. Yeah, these yeah. Uh, some of these fantastic Cold War Jets they've yeah. got there. Um, mm. God, I'm going to miss that one. Um, but no, that's another one for you on the 24th of May. So make sure you're there. Mm. It's a busy um, month, actually. It's a busy this month, Season's yeah. very much sort of kicking off, isn't it, this month? It's so air show season is really in full swing, isn't it, when we get to May? Yeah, the Duxford one is going to be is going to be a really popular one, yeah. I think, yeah, um, with the celebrations and stuff. I think there's going to be a lot of stuff on the ground, yeah. um, static displays yeah. and that there as well. Well, they've got the space, haven't they? So, yes, yeah. they definitely have got the space. So, yeah, you can uh, find, uh, hopefully find us there at Duxford if mm. me and Matt make it there um, to the VE Day. Probably the Sunday. I on the thought, Sunday, yeah. yeah, on the 24th of May. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So I guess we're going to bring 
episode 59 to a close of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch, um, the website, it's www.plaintalkinguk.com and then hit the uh, contact the show button. Ping us a message and we'll get in touch. Uh, we like to hear your feedback, good or bad. We want to, you know, we want to hear from you. Uh, Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Plain Talking UK. Plain obviously spelled P-L-A-N-E. And uh, Twitter, it's also twitter.com forward slash Plain Talking UK. So we'll say a few hellos to to some of uh, some of our listeners uh, who, who who like on Facebook, mm. so uh, hello to Tina Green. Hello to you. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, she's liked uh, the status update we have uh, for this show on the uh, on Facebook. Mm. Uh, David Barnshaw as well, and Kevin Graham. Hello to you guys. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, and to everyone else, really, who uh, likes us on Facebook and follows us on Twitter. Indeed. As you probably remember from last week, we mentioned that we are now on the Stitcher Yes, network. Stitcher Radio. If, you've got, um, if you haven't got the app, I strongly recommend you download it because it's a great way of listening to the show on your mobile. It's, it's much, you know, it, it's sort of mobile-based. And we're now on there, and that's www.stitcher.com. It's a lot more reliable, I'm afraid to say, than trying to listen to it on your phone through iTunes. But uh, anyway... <laughs> Yeah, so it's www.stitcher.com. Uh, there's some great shows uh, on there in general, everything from the BBC now, including us. Yes, and also before we finish as well today, got to say thanks as well to uh, Captain Jeff over at the Airline Pilot Guy podcast because he gave us a little mention oh, a, a couple of episodes back yes. on his show. Um, he does he does like dropping a little name name in there every now and again on his show. So thanks for that, Jeff, because yeah. we know that uh, in your busy schedule flying, you still mm. get a chance to listen to, to our show every now and again. Great. So thanks again uh, for that, Jeff. Don't forget, you can catch him, Airline Pilot Guy, over on iTunes as well. Fantastic show I listen to every week. Mm. And, uh, his shows are normally getting on for two hours, sometimes Gosh. a three hours. Long. But I'll tell you what, Matt, they are fantastic. I love them. I it's love ne- them. It's nearly a whole shift for you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it then for this week. So join us next week for episode 60. Six zero. Six zero. Yes. And we have a little thing in the pipe where we get, we're upgrading our systems. Yes. Um, and so we, we have yeah. a new project we that do. will start in episode 60 all being well. So uh, we'll tell you more about that in the show. Yes, so that's it then for this week. Thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you or speak to you all we'll again. We'll speak to you next, next week. week. So you, me might, come, well, no. you, no. you might see us next week. Oh, you might week, see us next week. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, I forgot <laughs> the, the, the experiment. Ooh. So uh, from uh, me, Carlos, it's a sunny start to the weekend. Goodbye. Chilly, chilly, chilly but sunny. Oh, chilly, chilly, chilly but, sunny. but sunny. Goodbye. And it's and goodbye from, from me. So goodbye then. Bye.